Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast. Clarissa and I are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Joan Ifland. Dr. Ifland is a peer support specialist. Her approach to recovery from stubborn diet-related diseases is clear. Address food addiction as the driver of overconsumption of harmful processed foods. Dr. Ifland earned her PhD in 2010 at Union Institute in Addictive Nutrition. Her MBA was awarded by Stanford Business School in 1978 and her Bachelor in Economics and Political Science by Oberlin College in 1974. Dr. Ifland has been an innovator in the field of recovery from food addiction since 1999 with the publication of her first book. In 2015, she founded the Food Addiction Education Facebook group to help people recover from food addiction. She also built the website foodaddictionresources.com, which provides free information on recovery from food addiction. In 2016, she founded the first online training in food addiction to make recovery easier in small online groups, foodaddictionreset.com. From 2014 to 2017, she wrote and edited the only textbook on recovery from food addiction, Processed Food Addiction, Foundations, Assessment, and Recovery, published by CRC Press. In early 2018, she conducted the first Reset Week, which was the first online program to support people at home through withdrawal from processed foods. Also in 2018, she published the popular book, Recovery from Food Addiction, Fabulous Meals for the Week in Two Hours, which is a breakthrough system for easily managing meals for recovery from food addiction. Welcome, Dr. Ifland. All right, Joan, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today. And we we know you wrote the textbook on processed food addiction. So can Mm -hmm. you tell us what inspired you to do that? And maybe how was it received? And have you gotten any pushback from it? Okay, so what inspired me was CRC Press coming and asking me to write it. (laughs) It was like, let me think about it. Okay. I knew it was needed, and there's only one other person on the planet with a PhD in addictive nutrition, and that's Kathleen de Maison, and she didn't choose to go on with her research. She wrote two amazing books, Potatoes Not Prozac, and then she wrote The Littlest Food Addict about food addicted children, but I knew the world needed a textbook, and I didn't know how to write a textbook, but I said, okay, anyway. And how has it been received? It's a game changer. I mean, I'm going to own it. It took me three years to write it. Clearly, the heavens wanted it to happen because right at the time I got the offer of the contract, my dad died in Cincinnati and my stepmom was there on her own, 91 years old, Belgian, living in the U.S. in a facility. And my dad's dying, you know, deathbed wish. He said, will you please see through the end of her life. I said, yeah, of course. So I moved back to Cincinnati from Houston and immediately got this wonderful little tiny apartment overlooking the Ohio River. And the the textbook company said, it'll probably take a year and a half to write this. And there I was free. My dad left me enough money that I could live on it. And it took three years. I looked at something like six or 8,000 studies and pulled out 
uh, 2000. So there are 2000 citations. I wrote about 70% of it and then got other experts to write about 30% of it. But the reception is fun to watch. Of course, I haven't been at a conference for a year and a half, practically. But before that, if I could drag some doctor over to my book table, they would open the book. And of course, the first thing they would see would pages and pages of bibliography. I remember this one doctor saying, oh, this is a scientific book. And you could just see it, the light in his eyes change. I know another doctor at that same conference came up to the table and we started talking. And he's a well-known practitioner. And he said, I want to talk to you more about this. Could I borrow this book overnight? And the next morning, he came back down to the table. Okay, so this is what we ought to be able to do together. He was ready to go. So what I do think is that it's a mind changer. So it's not a bestseller. It doesn't have a publisher that knows how to do publicity or any of that. But I love what Betten Janssen said. I was on Zoom with Betten one night, and she's just like, oh, I wish I'd had this book my, my whole career. I'd like to hit him over the head with it. <laughs> just like, I was thinking literally, and she's thinking figuratively. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you can't... It does that. So what it did was it did collect the evidence. It's like a mass of what's called a literature review. There's no new research in it. Like nobody chose to submit a chapter with something new in it. It's literally a massive literature review. And why? Uh, Why does it work? It's because for decades, people have been researching obesity, eating disorders, and drug addiction. And they didn't know it, but they're illustrating aspects of processed food addiction. So particularly the middle 11 chapters, which are uh, each chapter on one of the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for addictions, I was able to assemble the evidence that that behavior, that diagnostic criteria exists in processed food addiction. Now, I took and assembled and organized what's there, but there's still big pieces missing. There are still crucial studies that have not been done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I found your book and I was like highlighting, like reading it, even though it's a textbook for me, it just reads. It's a page turner. So well, it is a page turner. And I was like, Clarissa, you've got to get this book. And then Clarissa's like WhatsApp texting Bitten. And she's like, Bitten, you got to get this book. And it was like this whole cascade. And now Bitten requires it as part of her reading for Uh her holistic addiction medicine course and all that kind of stuff. And so we're just, we're so grateful that you took those years of your life and you put it together because it is a page turner and it is a needed text to advance what is happening in the processed food, food addiction world for sure. So Clarissa and I, speaking of Clarissa and I, we are clinicians in this field and we come with histories from working with, I'm a licensed mental health and addiction therapist in the state of Montana. Clarissa is a registered social worker in Ontario, Canada. And Uh we have histories of working with people with other substance, behavioral addictions, as well as trauma, that kind of thing. And we really the story that we haven't heard in any podcast, I think yet that you've been on is we want to know about your clinical work. Like what was your clinical experience like as you were working on your PhD and then postdoctorate and how has that helped inform how you work with people now? So I was in a 12 step group for eight years before I went back to get my PhD. I don't have one license. I'm a researcher by, you know, by the initials behind my name. I'm a researcher and I'm an MBA. So my approaches are 
So we have a peer support system now, the Addiction Reset Community, which is online. It's built entirely from studies. So if a study said this, I translated that, okay, so we're going to do X. If it says X, then we're going to do Y in the ARC, the Addiction Reset Community. And I still don't have a license. I'm a peer support person. And so there were two really game-changing realizations from the textbook. One, it's a severe addiction. So the American Psychiatric Association says if you meet six or more out of those 11 criteria, I mean, I'm writing chapter after chapter, right? I'm looking, just doing searching, searching, searching the database for research, coming up with new angles to search. And I'm writing chapter, I write chapter one, unintended use. No problem. Tons of evidence for unintended use. And I said, well, everybody's got that one. Chapter two, failure to cut back. Well, 79% of the country has that one. Chapter three, time spent. Well, everybody I've ever talked to has that one. Chapter four, cravings. Gosh, everybody's got cravings. Everybody has cravings so much they even use it in the processed food advertising. Plenty of evidence for cravings, people with cravings. Chapter five, failure to fulfill roles. Well, everybody's got that. Everybody's unable to do something, get down on the floor or progress in a career or finish an education. A lot of people have that one. And then criteria six, problems in relationship. Everybody's ever, I've ever talked. And that's when I just sat there. I wrote the end of chapter six and it was like, oh, this is a severe addiction. And then there are other things that you see in the research for addictions that make addictions harder to put into remission. The younger they start, the more different substances being used, the cueing, the intensity of the cueing in the environment. And then the relative addictivity, I just finished reading and reviewing this book by Michael Moss, Hook, and he makes the argument that sugar, fat, salt, once they've touched the inside of the mouth, it's a half a second till they impact the brain, as opposed to all other drugs, which is 10 seconds, 10 minutes, whatever. So the substances are highly, highly addictive. This is a severe addiction. It's very deeply seated as neurons are developing. Because the food industry attacks children, the neurons are addicted at the moment of development. So that reward system brain cell doesn't have any memory of not being addicted. So that told me, uh, so, so then I, you know, I looked it up. So what do you do about a severe addiction? Oh, it's two years of residential treatment. One year in the treatment facility, and then you get a year of where you're released to go out and work. And I said, well, we're not getting that for 300 million people. <laughs> so what's the next level? Intensive outpatient, IOPs. And I said, well, maybe we could do that online. And right at about, so I said, I immediately started a daily phone call, a conference call. That was not nearly enough. I'm writing away on the textbook and I'm posting, creating a, a handout page to go with the textbook, Food Addiction Resources. Well, that's not enough. But okay, I got to finish this book. So the book took three years to write. It was supposed to be 150,000 words. It's 400, 240,000 words. The publisher finally said, this is not a textbook. This is a reference book. Okay. Is it okay? Like, okay. (laughs) So I didn't know how to write a textbook. Anyway, what has happened, as soon as I turned in the manuscript, like the next day, I started researching teaching platforms. I chose Kajabi. And then at the end of that year, that was 2017, at the end of that year, I met Zoom. And we did our first kind of reset week where we go all day. 
the first week of January 2018, I just took some volunteers from the conference call. And then we had a, a paid week following. Now, mind you, for the prior 22 years, this is three years ago, I had tried everything. The only thing, so I tried handouts. I tried getting on TV. I tried writing a popular book. I tried one-on-one lay education. But the one thing that had worked, which I kind of had missed, was I did my doctoral internship in a small church in South Houston. And that worked incredibly well. By the end of two years of just showing up and giving education, the whole church was free of diet-related diseases and off their medications. An elderly population reinvigorated. Just, it was beautiful. And I didn't really catch that that was unusually successful. I tried even a prepared meal company, which is kind of the model of, oh, you're alcohol addicted? Let me tell you about water. I've got this great water delivery system. (laughs) Deliver water to your house. That's that model. That doesn't work at all. But I did learn that even at the highest levels of society, we were serving a very high-end law firm in downtown Houston, the kind of law firm that will just skim off the cream of the crop. Those people, when they got on our food system, had improvements. And they're the highest functioning people in the world, probably. And they're like, Joan, I seem to be thinking more clearly. Really? You know, and I'm not having that mid-morning, mid-afternoon slump. And my cravings are gone. And I just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so this has reached the highest functioning people. Okay, so I just, what happened was on that Monday, the first day of January 2018, we started out, we had maybe like 10 people on the screen. And we just had fun activities planned for the day. And a couple of people came to me and they were scared. Like, I don't think I can start this today. And I certainly can't weigh and measure my food because I'll just trigger me into restricting. I said, I'm not really ready. So at the end of the day, I checked in. Everybody's like, well, yeah, I ate clean today. I weighed and measured my phone. Like, what? After all 22 years trying 14 different things, there it was just sitting there. And I didn't know at that time about mirror neurons, but I do now. And the the research on it is really, really good. There's this great book by two Harvard researchers connected. And then there's another book, uh, Mirroring, by the Italian researchers who actually discovered mirror neurons. And the thing that I now know today is that they have more control over the brain than any other system. And the food industry has used them against us to get us addicted and keep us addicted. So I'm not a clinician by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a peer support person. We're now in the addiction reset community. We're up to 12 hours a day of live programming. Then you start immediately start looking at, okay, so what activates a mirror neuron the most? Uh, The people I see the most, the people I know the best, the people who are around me most of the time. The amazing thing is the frontal lobe knows about screens. But the other 98% of the brain, which is working pretty much the way it did a million years ago, doesn't understand screens. It thinks that we're just sitting in the same room. If I can see you, it must be because you're right in front of me. Mm -hmm. So mirror neurons accept images that they see on screens faithfully. It's just amazing. So that's my quote unquote 
not clinical experience. No, that clears it up. And thank you so much because that, that has kind of always been this thing. I'm like, I want to know about this experience that she must have had getting this doctorate. But, but that makes sense. Like you said that it's more of it's, you're a peer support person. And so that just clarifies it for me. And so thank you so much, Clarissa. I know you have a really great question about what Joan just said. Yeah, well, it does make a lot of sense. And of course, you would be building evidence from all of the research studies that you were reading when you were creating the textbook. So I can see how that it would be like more evidence-based practice. What I'm interested in is how perhaps the big food industry has used this, whether it's the DSM to create this addiction Mm -hmm. business model. Mm -hmm. And can you just let our listeners know how this might be affecting them every single day and they may not even realize it? Yeah, they definitely don't realize it. I just finished another book This is called uh, Surveillance Capitalism. It's about how the technology companies are taking our free will. Okay, so this is uh, screen addiction, basically. So what all these corporations want to do is they want to insert themselves into our brains and drive our decisions, which because we have brain imaging technology, they can figure out exactly how to do that. We know about Pavlovian conditioning of brain cells. There are two researchers Ann Kelly spent her whole research career looking at how brain cells can be taught, and they can, and you can teach them anything. And if you just repeat it enough, they will believe it. And you go right back to the brain is working pretty much the way it worked a million years ago. A million years ago, you didn't see anything that wasn't true. You didn't see anything that wasn't happening right in front of you that was actual reality. So 98% of the brain doesn't have a filter. If it sees something, it assumes it's happening. So the food industry uses that mercilessly. We don't like to be alone. Those mirror neurons are there to keep us connected with a tribe because if you were in a tribe and you ate when they ate and you looked for food when they looked for food and you took shelter or looked for shelter or fought off predators, your children would live. But if you were the one that would wander off, then you would die because the wild animals would be waiting for you. So we have that, that's, that mirror neuron engagement is crucial The food industry employs highly trained addictionists. So in Michael Moss's first book, Sugar, Fat, Salt, he talks about Howard Moskowitz, Harvard PhD in experimental psychology and marketing. He is the one who went around to all the corporations and maxed out the sugar, fat, salt. Mind you, sugar, fat, salt being the most impactful substances able to impact the brain in half a second after touching a taste bud or the top of the roof of the mouth. It's diabolical. So, you know, I have this MBA from Stanford way back, 78. So I kept reading and reading and reading this. I said, okay, this is the addiction business model. There was one study about industrial addictions. And then I just said, okay, I got to teach this. I got to teach what's going on. So I came up with the five A's of the addiction business model. Lots of advertising, lots of availability, lots of affordability, very cheap prices. Highly, highly addict, like ramp up and hide the addictive substances in the product. And then age of onset, get the youngest possible user. So tobacco perfected this model. You know, they're the ones who tried to get 10-year-old boys to smoke through the Joe Camel cartoon campaign, right? They extracted concentrated nicotine and put it back into the cigarettes. So that's addictive product formulation. They created this marketing model called surround marketing. 
where first they, you know, ha, three, three cigarettes. So they addict the reward centers and then they surround you with triggering. Everywhere you go, there's a Marlboro or there's a cigarette vending machine, there are Marlboro ads. You can earn Marlboro logoed items so that when you light your cigarette, you've got a Marlboro lighter there, you're constantly being triggered. And then the, originally why smoking became an epidemic is because of a man named Duke who bought the patent for the rolling machine. So before the rolling machine, cigarettes were hand-rolled and they were expensive. But the rolling machine, you could get that price down to five cents a package, which you needed to do because you needed the person to be able to use it often enough to really embed the addiction, repeat exposure, Pavlovian conditioning of those reward centers. And now we know that when those reward centers are active, they're pulling the blood supply away from the frontal lobe. So you don't have a braking system. All the rational thought, I don't want to do that. That's disgusting. Those brain cells are not getting any blood flow. So they don't get any control of behavior. Whereas the addicted brain cells are pumping out neurotransmitters and they're traveling right over to the behavior centers in the brain and controlling them. This is the zombie walk. (laughs) When somebody says, I don't want to be doing this. I hate doing this. Stop doing this. And you're walking to the kitchen and you're getting it. The zombie walk. Yeah. Yeah. And then tobacco came into processed foods in the mid-1980s and they just brought the model. Instead of 10-year-old boys, they hit the toddlers in front of the TV. They ramped up the TV commercials from like 160 per Saturday morning to 560 per Saturday morning in seven years. They ramped up the amount of sugar in breakfast. It was over before it began. We never had a chance. No, and within, Michael Moss is hooked. Like he's, he, yeah, it's just almost disgusting. Like how he laid that out. And yeah, sorry, not to cut you off. Uh, no, yeah, no, just, it yeah, is. Absolutely. I, I don't know. I just had to stop thinking about it because I couldn't get my brain around, around how evil it is. I mean, I, and I hate that word, but it's the right word. And then he apologizes for them. Oh, they think they're just making food fun. What? Don't you apologize for those people, Michael Moss? Yeah, but they're addicted and addicted people are delusional. So they don't, I don't know whether they think they're, I don't know whether they know or not. I mean, in Sugar, Fat, Salt, Michael Moss asks Howard Moskowitz, how do you justify, kind of like, I don't remember the question, but how do you justify having ramped up the Sugar, Fat, Salt and all these products, hundreds of them? And Howard Moskowitz's answer is, well, I had to feed my family. What? Yeah. And Howard Moskowitz has a website. You can hire him today to ramp up, to increase the sugar, fat, salt in your products. He was on a panel. I was asked to be on a panel, on a, not a panel, but a summit. And I saw his name on the list and I just wrote it. So like, I will not be on a summit with, with Howard Moskowitz. So the, the title of summit was how to addict people to sugar. Oh, yeah. You know, what's so interesting about that, like him having answered that way is I, again, I have years of working with, I mean, not only people who have been addicted, but actual drug dealers, right. Who maybe weren't even using their own product, but that is, that has been their answer. I had to survive. I had to feed my family. I had to have a roof over my head. And that is exactly what they say as they're slinging meth on the corner. Yeah. Blows your mind. I think you've got to be in denial if you're going to do that. I think so too. Right. Because that integrity piece, right? Like how would you be able to sleep at night if you had that integrity? You wouldn't, you would have to leave that job for sure. Uh, Okay. We're going to switch gears just a little bit. Yeah. 
because we, it's been pretty controversial lately. And again, we work on the front lines. We are clinically working with clients who show up and say, Hey, I have processed food addiction. I have sugar addiction. I'm a carb addict. And the big question is to fast or not to fast. And so we are really wondering, what are your thoughts on this? I'm sure that that you've read research on it. And can you speak to how dieting and fasting kind of create that almost like binge brain? We're just interested to hear your professional take on this. Yeah. So I work from research, right? One of the best researchers out there is Eric Stice. In the last couple of years, he moved from Oregon Research Institute to Stanford. And he did two studies. He likes to do these perspective studies where you gather data you put it away for five years, you go back to the people and you gather data again. It's a really, it's one of the strongest study designs. So he did two studies, two different kinds of populations. He asked them about their dieting practices. He put the data away. And then five years later, he asked them about their eating practices and he just nailed it. The dieters were now binging and more likely to have bulimia. So he did the same thing with fasting. And waited the five years, the fasteners were now more likely to have eating disorders. So why? Why would that be? Well, I think it's because of another part of the brain, which is the most ancient. So you've got the primitive, most primitive reptilian brain, seven million years. You've got the midbrain where the addiction is three and a half million years. And then you got the frontal lobe, which has like been there for about the, the length of a wink of an eye, 140,000 years. Nothing. That, that frontal lobe has no control, period. There's this idea that you can teach that frontal lobe and it's going to square off against those addicted and food-seeking parts of the brain and win, not happening. That's why you've got to swing the conformance drive over to the frontal lobe. Anyway, so the food-seeking brain is, I think you might be able to argue that it's more powerful than the mirror neurons under one circumstance. This is kind of brutal, but here we go. Famine is the leading cause of death on the planet. We have periods where there was no sun for 10 years. It's why humans survived when other species didn't. It's because we can eat practically anything. So during those years, maybe not much was growing above ground, but we could dig, that we could eat roots. So if there's not enough food, the food-seeking part of the brain will take over the brain. And there's only one reason why there wouldn't be enough food for 7 million years. It's because a famine was coming. So when that part of the brain experiences not enough food, either through dieting or fasting, it will wake up. It'll start to send out neurotransmitters or control the brain. So how do we know this? Because in for those 7 million years, for heaven's sakes, if you found food, you would eat it as fast as you could. And then you would run and hide. Because while you were eating it, the predators, you know, human bones are in the piles of bones, the giant hyenas, they would be looking for you. Where is she? Where is she? And the longer you stayed there eating, the closer they were getting. So as soon as you ate everything that you could possibly eat, you would run and hide. And you would eat it fast because there was some other animal there that was going to eat it if you didn't eat it. And that is what's erupting. It's not pathological at all. It's a natural survival response to not enough food. And the other real danger, particularly of fasting, is the high. Mm -hmm. So you get a high from it and you can get addicted to that high because you're used to being addicted from the processed food. So you can get addicted to a starvation high. It's just this incredibly lovely thing that our bodies do. If you're going to starve to death, at least it won't hurt because Mm. your brain will be soaked in dopamine. 
So I went to one of the leading fasting proponents. I just, this is my research method. Nothing I could publish about, but is the word dopamine in any of those books, any of the fasting books? No. So that author has no idea that he's setting people up for what he's setting people up for. It's really, really remarkable the number of really popular writers who just have not looked above the neck. Yeah. So no fasting, please. No fasting. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And as someone who used to struggle with anorexia, I can speak to that high. And that is how you're able to maintain eating no food because it does feel good when you're doing it. And that's also, as you were saying, I believe why it can be so deadly because Mm -hmm. people don't want to give up that high. Right. And so in regards to the way that we eat, right? An abstinent food plan, which means no processed food, no sugar, no flour, no grains for some people, and even restricting other foods. Would you consider that to be like, what would you say to the eating disorder world who talks about intuitive eating and dietitians who call what we do restrictive? What would you say to those individuals? Get a grip. (laughs) So there is a whole chapter, chapter six, food plans. It's got 250 citations. That's just over. And well, no, there are a couple of studies that really still need to be done. But this, I think, is a really clever thing that the food industry has done. They've been able to frame this conversation. So, yeah, it's like quit smoking. Oh, you're restricting tobacco, are you? Mm, don't you know that's pathological? Yeah. Or you give up drinking. No, you've got to be able to drink because you need fluids. Yeah. No, it's just ludicrous. You've got to be able to divide the world into addictive processed food-like substances and real food. And we do have a list at Food Addiction Resources of, we have the excluded list and then the unprocessed list. And we're actually starting to teach a rotation method because a lot of people can't tolerate the clean foods. So I'm doing a series of videos right now on uh, rotating proteins, plant proteins and animal proteins, rotating fruit, rotating starches, rotating fats, rotating vegetables, rotating portion sizes, rotating combinations. And then just starting to think I need to do one on timing of meals. Somebody said, I just do better if I eat every two or three hours. I said, well, good, eat every two or three hours. I do best eating four times a day. So yeah, that's what I would say, (laughs) get a grip. I love it. I think when we asked Bitten that question, she was like, grow up guys. So yeah, no, it's, it's beautiful. So, and this kind of leads in what you were just saying, because we have found, right. It's, it's not only is it the sweet taste, sugar, flour, grains for some people on and on, but also there's like the dieting and the volume piece of it. Right. So, yeah. so we spoke a little bit to the dieting, but the volume piece. So when you're working with somebody who has that volume piece, so it's maybe they are eating the clean foods, but they are just eating when they're not hungry. It's out of some other emotional or stressful trigger. What do you suggest or how do you guide the people that you're working with through that piece of it? It's, it's mirror neuron engagement. It's the only way I know to do it because the frontal lobe's not working that well. And frontal lobe also does some emotional processing. So it's the same issue. The reason why volume eating works, the high that you get off of volume eating is the serotonin high. 
So that's the other reason, one of the other many reasons why food addiction is so hard to beat is because the variety of substances have addicted all four of the major reward systems, dopamine and serotonin and cannabinoids and opiates. So it's not like alcohol where you've got three other systems that can keep you lifted up while you're repairing the dopamine system. It's why community is so important because when you come into community, you get an oxytocin release. So maybe none of those are working very well. None of the basic ones are working well, but you can you can stay lifted up on an oxytocin release, which is just going to have zillions of powerful and helpful repercussions. So serotonin has been shown when the stomach is stretched, the stomach releases serotonin, and it has been shown to travel to the brain and attach to the serotonin receptors. So that's the high that you're getting off of volume eating. And so the answer is the same as anything else. You've got to have somebody like you guys on your team. You've got to. So the ARC is an element. Bitten and I sat down one day, which is like, what would our dream team be? Well, there'd be like seven elements on that dream team. Your primary care, your endocrinologist, your therapist, your counselor type person, uh, maybe a physical therapist, and the ARC. But what is the ARC doing? The arc is providing those hours per day that are going to pull your mirror neurons, just wrestle them away from the food industry and over to people who don't eat processed foods. And until you do that, it's just, we just had a great study showing that your social circle determines what you're going to be eating. If your social circle is not losing weight, you cannot expect to lose weight. So you've got to pull people over and give that mirror neuron system a new social circle. And then that, those mirror neurons will happily and rapidly and effectively start directing that other 98% of the brain to do what those people are doing. And then it's remarkably easy. But without the processed foods, all the history starts coming up. And that's why they've got to have somebody like you. Yeah, well, we've heard about exposure therapy and aversion therapy, and mm-hmm. you speak to immersion therapy, which yeah. sounds like the ARC. Um, yeah. What I'm wondering is, what does the research say about this? But I think you kind of spoke to it. So maybe I will touch on, I've also heard you say, you know, you do need to spend all of this time on screen with individuals that are like-minded. You need to cover your TV screens. You really need to get away from the cues and the triggers. But a lot of us have to still live our life. How do we do that at the same time? It's a super good question. Yeah, because one day I counted and conversations, smells, signs, commercials, over 160. Mm -hmm. How do I I live like that? That's it's around marketing. So we have some cool things to do about that. One, you don't have to be paying attention. Like just go back a million years. If you could hear a voice, that voice was your tribe. So we say, okay, go do your vacuuming, prepare your food, run through your emails, go for a walk, mow the lawn, drive your car. But keep this on at a murmur. We do have those 12 hours per day. And then we have an archive of workshops. The only thing we record in the day is our conference call, which is not visual. We've got hundreds of those. Just keep that murmur going. And it's pretty surprising how quickly the the mirror neurons will switch over. Like that story I told about the very first total reset day, by the end of the day, people were, well, I had a clean day. I haven't had a clean day in 20 years. I had a clean day today. It was like one of the top 10 moments of my entire life. 
So you don't have, this is a cool thing. It's got to be online. You're not going to go somewhere for the rest of your life. And you've got to maintain it for a lifetime because as soon as the arc murmur stops, the food addiction industry murmur starts. The mirror neurons are, they're a helpless radar. They will be looking for somebody to latch on because they don't want you to be eaten by a giant hyena. It's just the way the the 98% of the brain is still working. So we have strategies for how to keep that murmur going in the background while you live the rest of your life. The cool thing, there's another very, very cool thing we discovered, which is all the people in your household have mirror neurons too. So when one individual in a household starts eating clean and this friggin' murmur is going on, other members of the household just start doing it too. It's infectious. It's contagious. A lot of this book, what they're really known for, these two Harvard researchers in the Connected book, is the concept of contagious behavior. So I love this one story. So we had a, an ARC member who was shamed. And so they were going off to a distant bedroom to listen to their ARC material and their partner was sabotaging them. So he said, why don't you listen to the ARC material in the living room? And they said, okay, I'll try that. So one ARC session, the partner was in a puttering around the kitchen. They go for a walk later in the day and the partner says, you know, I realized I brought you that ooey gooey thing the other day and I enabled you. I'm sorry I did that. I won't do that anymore. One arc session. So the name of the game is to control the cueing in the household, the messaging. It's messaging, messaging. Okay, so here's the big, big, big breakthrough. Frontal lobe cannot face off directly and win against the addicted brain cells or the food-seeking brain cells. Will not happen. You can teach this until you're blue in the face. It will never help. But what the frontal lobe can do is control the messaging that reaches the other 98% of the brain. The frontal lobe can eat fully portioned on-time meals and put that food-seeking brain to sleep. The frontal lobe can decide to drive to work one block over and miss the fast food outlets. The frontal lobe can decide to turn off the TV. Stress is another big factor here. Stress lies close to the addictive brain cells and it'll activate the addictive brain cells. And all television is stressful deliberately stressful to get you to buy stuff. So that's the trick. Control the messaging that reaches the other 98% of the brain. Yeah, no, that's great. I've heard use the word immersion therapy over and over again. And I'm like, okay, I know about exposure. I know about aversion. What is this immersion? But that makes sense that that's what the arc is essentially that you're teaching people or just showing people right through the screens and through the We're, we're giving them a way to stimulate safe brain cells. You have dangerous mm-hmm. brain cells, which are the addicted brain cells, the stress brain cells, and the food-seeking brain cells. So we're giving people, it's very, very easy to get an oxytocin release and get your control power. Powerful, I am powerful. I don't need that stuff. Get those brain cells activated. You just flip on your Zoom screen or open up a, a, some other ARC resource and stimulate those brain cells. You can mm-hmm. move yourself right out of a craving just by turning on a, an ARC event. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So Clarissa and I recently were approached and we're going to be participating in an international study where we're going to start exploring treatment outcomes with an online food addiction program. And we'll be following up with these clients for 24 months after they complete it. And so what we want to know is, are you tracking these outcomes with ARC? And will you be working with others to write the research, to share that research? I mean, will we have numbers? Yeah, yeah. 
So this just started this week. So I am acutely aware of all the programs out there that don't work, never could possibly work, not powerful in us, wrong information, addictive substances in the food plan, mean people running the program, re-traumatizing, unrealistic expectations. There are, I have a new presentation called the 20 must-haves for recovery. And it's like, you got to be surrounded by nice people. So I, until I had reliable results, I just wasn't willing to really go out there. But now I realize the ARC is working so well that it's immoral or unethical for me to not advertise it. So we have a publicist. I went to her and her name's Sarah. I said, Sarah, we got to get this out there. And she said, well, the first thing the reporters are going to ask for is data. Okay. So I'm a PhD. That's what PhDs are. They're trained to do research. I have a friend at a hospital. I have talked to that friend a couple of times this week. We're going to start the research. I think we're going to start with diabetes because you all know you can put type 2 diabetes into remission pretty darn fast once you get on a clean food plan and you can only get on and stay on a clean food plan if your marrow neurons will let you. So yeah, I mean, I don't know, just private message me or email me about this study and I'll see if there's any way I can support it. Yeah, that's so exciting because that's exactly some of the missing pieces in this field. Definitely. And I think it's so hard. Like what you said is the arc and you were talking about different food plans and trying different things because we're so bio-individual. And so how do we create a program that can support all individuals, different needs, right? Uh Because some people Mm -hmm. will choose like a 12-step approach. Some people will find that community. They'll find it, say, in the ARC, but maybe they need that outside support and they find Uh it in different ways. They do need outside support. Yeah. Yeah. The ARC is not a standalone answer. Yeah. Really, until I could say to health professionals like you guys that this is reliable. I mean, like you see these programs there. I know another big deal food addiction professional who just quietly told somebody who quietly told me that they think they have about a 10% success rate. Like, hell no, I'm not doing that. We did do a recent evaluation of a three-month retention. We had 80% over three months. So I said, okay, that's way above industry average. And retention is everything because as soon as you don't have that person, as soon as you're not protecting that person, which the surround messaging, there's in just they're going back to the food industry. So retention to me is the A number one indicator of success. And we do have one study on that showing that engagement is what prevents attrition. And that's where we're focusing is how to make sure that everybody who comes through our door as we've got a new system where as soon as somebody registers that we've got, because we're around the world, we've got two people set up on opposite sides of the world to watch the registrations. And as soon as somebody comes in, they've got a phone call, they've got a text, or they've got a PM, or they've got an email, and we're going to stay with it until we get a response. So they're on their computer when they register and grab them in that moment and start holding their hand. The other thing that really came out of the textbook was the depth of trauma and a lot of trauma around support groups. So you know the moment that they're signing up for the ARC they're terrified because they're being triggered into all the trauma that they've experienced in other support groups. So as soon as we can start talking to them, you're in the present now. We've got you. We're here. We understand. You're okay. 
otherwise, what we find is that they never engage. They're just too terrified to engage. They don't come to the chats and calls. They don't participate in their private messenger group. They're not opening their emails and then they quit. So I'm saying to my team now, one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to get to 100% retention or we're going to run out of ideas. So far, we haven't had either of those happen. It's the like-mindedness. So like we have these 12, 7 to 12 people private messenger groups so that we can replicate that so 7 million year experience. People are comfortable in groups of 7 to 12. So now we're just about to cook up with a digital marketer so that we can have a small group of women, 50 years older, older, menopausal, Catholic from Ohio. And those people, are their mirror neurons are going to be more active, comfortable, engaged, trusting than if we put one of those in with a uh, South African health practitioner, you know, no. So we're constantly improving our mirror neuron engagement. We know what the game is, mirror neuron engagement. And then a lot of expertise, people like you guys. So we recently heard you talking with I don't even remember what podcast you were just on. Maybe it was, oh, it was Siobhan. It was Siobhan on Sweet and Sayo. And you were talking about, because again, right, like everybody comes to us with a different goal in mind. And mm-hmm. usually, at least right now, it's that time of year, people are coming to me and I'm sure Clarissa, right? Saying, I just want to lose the weight. And time and time again, we work with our clients to pull it back. Like, it's not about the weight. Like, let's stay right here. Like, let's let's focus on what we need to do. And so we've heard you speak about safe weight management and food addiction. Can you expand on what to do and what not to do when it comes to weight loss and food addiction? Go back to the research. People who think about food a lot, why would you be thinking about food a lot? Well, you're in a famine. So all that food journaling and keeping track of what you're eating and writing out plans and committing your food, it's all waking up the food-seeking brain. So that's one of the big don'ts is minimize to the bare minimum. Like I know when I first got on this, I just kind of an efficient kind of person. I had the same list every week for the grocery store. I was feeding a husband and two preteens. And I knew to get the big London broil and the big turkey breast and the biggest chicken they had and the biggest fillet salmon of salmon they had and a huge bag of shrimp. And we would run each of those foods 24 hours. So I got enough. I would go home and I would pack the ovens and my husband would take the stuff to grill out to the grill. And I put all the rice and beans on the top of the stove, put the tubers in the oven and everything would be cooked in a two-hour period. So that meant for the rest of the week, my exposure to food queuing was really minimal. I was making 24 hours of meals for four people in about 20 minutes. I would pull frozen stuff out in the afternoon, make dinner from it. And while I was cleaning up from dinner, I'd be packing all the containers for breakfast and lunch the next day. So reducing food queuing is the A number one thing I would say about safe weight management is, yeah. And then you do have to be in the right social circle. So safe weight management is being in the right social circle. I think this was also an Eric Stice five-year perspective study, which is people who weigh themselves more gain more, get the scale out of the house. The only concerned about your weight for one reason, you don't have enough. So for 7 million years, the only time a human would be thinking about their weight is because they were on their way to dying of famine. So when you think about weight, 
sure you're waking up that food seeking brain. We talk about if somebody needs to talk about trauma and weight and body shape, absolutely talk about it. But we never celebrate weight loss. Oh my God. No. You're just like send an invitation to the food seeking brain to cooperate with the food industry. No, we would never talk about weight loss. How scary to a human, to a human food seeking brain. Don't hang around with people who eat processed foods. Don't hang around with people who are losing weight. I wanted to make this exception and I forgot to make it. There's one time when mirror neurons do not run the brain and the food-seeking brain is going to overcome the mirror neurons. And that is during the time of a famine. Because during a time of a famine, your survival instinct is eat all this food and don't let anybody else have any of it. So don't protect your tribe. There comes a point where you protect yourself. So if you've done enough dieting and fasting, you're there now. You're just in survival mode, and that is binge mode. You want to hear a really cool little story? I don't think I've ever repeated the story, but it's such a good story. Somebody wrote this story to me. They had a friend who had done some kind of a, you know, like a Peace Corps thing on a, a very remote island somewhere in Asia. And she said, Joan, 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 I just want to back you up. So my friend saw this very weird thing. There was this beautiful fruit tree in the village. And the villagers would eat the fruit as soon as it was edible. And I tried to tell them if they would just wait a few days, it would ripen and it would be delicious. They wouldn't do it. That's like, no, you eat that, you eat all of it, you eat it as fast as you can, as soon as it's edible, as soon as it's not going to make you sick. That's primitive survival behavior. Yeah, I think it obviously also speaks to the amplified eating disorders, people actually coming out and being willing to talk about food addiction during COVID and uh-huh. stores shutting down and, oh, maybe I don't have access to food for 24 hours a day. And so I'm going to buy it and I'm going to buy it all. And that way I'm going to have it. And then maybe I still have it in my freezer, but I'm going to go get more. It's like amplifying that reactory yeah. symptoms that you're yeah. discussing. And they do numb. You do get a dopamine surge. So for at least a few minutes, things seem better. And then people are watching a lot more TV. Oh, true. So a lot more stress just from watching TV. Like somebody And said, it's not hey, good news. It's all bad news. No, no. Somebody <laughs> said, Joe, I, I think you would really like this program. I said, okay, what's the program? Uh, they said, I forget what it was. But I said, I, isn't that a pretty stressful program? He says, no, 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 not at all. Okay, okay, I'll watch the trailer. In the trailer, a baby dies. In the trailer, a whole entire family except for the baby dies. In the trailer, the father of the dead baby dies. So we're so immune to stress that we don't even say it. This sister telling me, I think you'd really like this show. Yeah, it's like we just don't even understand how dangerous cortisol is for us, right? Mm-hmm. You said that perfectly. So Molly and I both sit on the Food Addiction Institute, and yeah. we were part of the team that submitted food addiction to the ICD uh, for to be recognized. We actually, I collaborated all the references a lot from your book. Uh-huh. And so we put that forward last month, and we just wanted to know where you stood, and did you support that submission? And if not, why? And what do you think? is missing that maybe still needs to be researched in order for it to come to fruition? Okay, that's a super excellent question. So on my doctoral committee, I had really top academicians from Georgetown, from University of Florida, from 
technical school up in New York and then University of Texas. I had two from University of Texas to people who had published extensively. And what they said is it took us a long time to figure this out. What is the current practice? And then whatever you do for your doctoral research, do get as close to that as you possibly can. What is accepted practice? What are people already doing? What are the systems that already exist? So that is why I did my doctoral dissertation on validating the DSM-4, so addiction diagnostic criteria for overeating. Okay. So if I were going to submit a proposal like to the American Psychiatric Association for Process Food Addiction Diagnosis, I would look at how other addiction diagnoses got accepted. And the most recent one was gambling. There are others that have gotten accepted in our lifetimes, like cannabis is a new addiction diagnosis. So what I would do is I would go and I would look at the submissions for gambling. So the submissions for gambling were organized by a researcher, and she had done quite a bit of the research herself. And I would try to track down that researcher and I would have a long conversation with her. I try to recruit her to mentor me in this process because the American Psychiatric Association accepted that. So I would go study by study, line by line, and I would say, do we have that study for processed food addiction? Do we have that one? Do we have that one? Do we have one? Oh, we don't have that one. Do we have that one? Do we have, yeah, we've got these three and that four, but we don't have these six. And then I would look at the organization of their application. So did they put everything in one great big document or did they put a little summary in an email and then list out a whole bunch of attachments? What format did they use? So I went back to, I forget who it was who sent me the information from FAI. And I said, how did you decide to approach this? And that person came back and said, well, we just answered the questions on the website. That's not how I would do it. So does this work? I said, yes. So when we published, we did publish the first description. We called it refined food addiction in the academic press. So we got that little feather in our cap. And I did exactly, I mean, my doctoral committee was working for next to nothing. My school didn't really pay them very much. So if they told me to do something, I did it. (laughs) It's like, okay, I'm going to make this rewarding for you. So we published it in a journal called Medical Hypotheses, and it was rigorous. I hired a medical writer to go over it, and a very eloquent medical writer who went over the article. And we took those seven diagnostic criteria and we showed the evidence for it. It was rigorous. It was methodical. And it was so close to the diagnostic criteria for alcoholism that it was accepted by the community. So I went and looked up last night, how many times has that article been cited? 391 times, almost 400 times. It's because it's so rigorous, because every inch is, yes, here's the evidence, here's the evidence, here's the study, here's how this is demonstrated. And that's the only way I know to do things. So now we've heard you mention a couple of times, even just today in this interview, that you suspect there's still some research needed in this area. So what do you think is missing? Like, let's talk to the Nicola Venas of the world and the Mark Golds and the David Wisses and our neuroscience researchers out there that are working on food addiction presently. What do we need to be looking at in order for the WHO and the APA to take this more seriously? 
We need massive withdrawal studies. I remember Walt Whitman came to Houston to give a, a talk, and I knew the organizers of his talk, and I said, could I please give him a ride to the airport the next morning? He said, sure. So uh, I gave him a ride to the airport, and I asked him that question. I said, what do we absolutely have to show? And he said that, so they're old school. And this is a long time ago. This is at least 10 or 15 years ago. But there are psychiatrists who still believe that if you don't have withdrawal syndrome, you don't have an addiction. They're like on this track of addictions are driven by withdrawal avoidance. And the hard thing about processed food addiction is that you're going to have to do those widespread withdrawal studies for not just the seven major categories of processed foods that we know are addictive, but what about all those food additives that are hidden in the products? So do you think that this is something that we will get to see recognized in our lifetime, like be it in the ICD or the DSM, be it food use disorder or processed food addiction? Do you think this is something that will be realized? Well, your lifetime looks a lot of different from mine. I'm 69 <laughs> years old. So I only got about 25 years. I don't know. But I got to tell you, I'm not waiting for it. I'm working my tail off night and day. Actually, I'm trying to get my workaholism under control. So <laughs> I was just like, I shouldn't be saying that, but it's still true. Because even if I'm not at my, I live by myself. I'm to quarantine. Like I'm allowed to think whatever I, you know, as much as I want to think. Like workaholism, one of the things that you're not supposed to do is think about work when you're not at work. Oh, yeah. forget about it. Not happening. So. This is a trigger um, situation for everyone right now with the stay-at-home stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've had a great year because I now realize how much travel takes me away from the building, you know, the constructive work. So will it ever happen in my lifetime? I actually, I think it's going to happen by degrees. You know, until you have general acceptance, you've got to persuade the American Psychiatric Association. I can't even get on their agenda. I'm probably the most highly credentialed full-time food addiction specialist type person. Like Mark Gold is into this, but he's the head of McBrain Institute. He does a lot of different kinds of things in addiction. So I've applied to ASAM. I've applied to the American Psychiatric Association to speak at their conferences. And I'm not, I haven't been accepted, but I do think now that I'm embarking I'm really hoping that I get a partnership with this hospital and their research team that I will, if I don't, then the doctor that I'm partnering with might be able to get on these agendas with new findings. Yeah. yeah. And I, even if it's a grassroots movement, right? We say one person gets well, all those people around them, they get well and the message does spread. It absolutely does. So where can our listeners find you? So it depends on what they're looking for. If they need help with their own food addiction reset, has a self-quiz with those 11 criteria and they can get started with us. Actually, we have a brand new umbrella website. Let me just say, go to processfoodaddiction.com. We got all of our services there. We got all of our free stuff there, processfoodaddiction.com. 
Thank you. Thank you for And asking. I think the clinician in me just wants to like, just have compassion and normalize for you the whole, like, we're not waiting for the APA or the WHO to get on board either. And I think Clarissa and I have both. Yeah. I think it's so hard to separate when it's your personal story that's driven you to this profession, right? It's so hard to then separate like what is work and what is my passion and what is driving me forward. And so this idea of workaholism, I mean, I think we're just literally right before this call talking about scheduling in our walks in nature and our meditation time and our massages and playing with sidewalk chalk, you know, all those different things. So we're right there with you, Joan. And I just wanted to to let you know that. So we have, go ahead. Hard to say that this is work. It just, yeah, it's hard to say it's work. It doesn't feel like work. Obsession really doesn't work now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think there's moments where I'm like, oh, I don't want to, I do not want to do this thing today, but for the most part, yeah, no, it's great. So we have a signature question uh-huh. and then we will let you get on with your day. Cause we've taken up so much of your time and, and so thank you so very much. Of it. Yeah. So our signature question, if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about processed food addiction, what would it be? Get it out of the house, turn off the TV as far away from yourself as you can get it and don't ever be reminded of it. It just destroys hundreds of millions of lives and children's lives. Get it out of the house. Don't ever give it to anybody. Don't let your children see it. (laughs) And make sure your children have clean food all the time available to them. And don't talk about it with them. Don't try to teach them. They have... Just don't give it to them. Don't let them see it. Get it out of the house. Don't make it available to them. Mm-hmm. And then tell everybody else they have severe allergies to it. It's hard. It's so hard for children. And never so judge. And never ever judge. Yeah. And nobody knows how hard this is. So true. Thank you so much, Dr. Iflin, for guys. being here. This has been so wonderful. I appreciate you. Yeah. And you know, I'll email you about a couple of things that you've brought up. I'd like to stay engaged with you guys. Absolutely. That'd be lovely. All right. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar-Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.